been said, as we think about the Holy Spirit, it's been said that the Holy Spirit perhaps is the most invisible of all the members of the Trinity, especially in terms of people's thinking and knowledge and even understanding. We all understand a great deal about God, about His work, about His character. We certainly emphasize His attributes. We think about the person and the work of Jesus very, very primarily. We consider uh, the incarnation and we consider His death and His burial and His resurrection. We emphasize all those things about Christ, but to balance it out, I think it's important for you and for me this morning to consider and to give some time thinking about the Holy Spirit. To realize that each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal and equally worthy with each of the other members of the Trinity. And my desire today is to help you, listen, listen, my desire today is to help you to worship the triune God with a greater sense of understanding, a greater sense of the true work and nature of the Holy Spirit, one of the persons of the Trinity. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about the Spirit, and, and in fact, there have been a lot of charismatic abuses of the gifts of the Spirit. And people uh, oftentimes are fearful of things when you begin to talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we need to be bound to Scripture. And I, I have said long ago, like many, many pastors that have gone before me, and theologians and missionaries, God, I want all of you that there is. My desire is to hunger after the fullness of God. And if your spirit has something for me, then I want it. I, I don't want to fear it. I, I want to fear God with a sense of awe and reverence. But at the same time, we want all of our doctrine and our practice be aligned with the truth of Scripture. And that's why I think it's very, very important today for uh, me to, again, invite you to Wednesdays as we talk about the spiritual gifts. And we'll talk about things related to the Spirit. Uh, you know, there is a lot of misinformation. I believe God is oftentimes blamed for many, many things that God doesn't do. The Spirit of God's primary work is to point you to Jesus and to give you an enablement to righteousness. He allows you the capacity for righteousness, to live a holy and godly life. His, his main function is not to make you laugh uncontrollably or to make you speak in gibberish or to fall to the floor. And it's so sad to me as you think about the apostolic nature of the gifts of the Spirit were these. They were to authenticate the message of the gospel and the authority of those apostles. So when we see flames of tongues happening in Acts chapter 2, when we see movement of healings happen in the ministry of Paul, they authenticated the ministry of those apostles. Now again, on Wednesdays, we'll continue to talk about those things. Today, my focus is on the work of the Holy Spirit, and I want us to look together at the person of the Holy Spirit, but more than that, the life that is in the Holy Spirit. I invite your attention to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I, I just feel impressed to, to say this, you know, if you think about God authenticating truth in those apostles' lives, isn't it much like our enemy, Satan, to take something that is so good and pure and right and distort it and twist it? If you think about much of the, the abuses of charismatic gifts thereby false teachers we see them on television and do you think God would give his spirit to authenticate false teachers and prosperity gospels and and all of those things that are focused around self you know if you think about it our lives 
are, are almost always drawn towards selfishness. That's just the human condition. You think about it. You don't have to teach your children how to do wrong or how to be selfish with their toys. We are born with that kind of a focus. And yet the Spirit of God leads us to a place of self-control and leads us to a place of life and power. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look together at Romans 8. I'm going to give you a couple of other verses by way of background, and we'll look at them on the screen. You can stay in Romans 8. But I want you to think with me about the true work of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit really doing? Jesus said this in John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send the helper. Now, the word helper translated here has an amazing legal dimension. It's an advocate. It is one who would stand in our defense. But in its wider context, the word helper speaks of a comforter. It speaks of a protector, a counselor, and a guide. In fact, later on, Jesus introduced the Spirit of, as the helper in John 14, where he said these words, that he would guide us into all truth. And so the Spirit of God guides us into truth. The Spirit of God is a comforter, a protector. He indwells the believer. The Spirit of God literally takes up residence in the hearts and lives of each and every person who is in Christ Jesus. So when you got saved, you were given the Holy Spirit as a deposit. Now, I, I want to give you five very quick truths about the Holy Spirit. Today, I really want to focus on teaching because if we don't understand, we will not have a sense of kazone. If there's not directive from God. So for all of us, let's think for a moment about the Holy Spirit. Five very quick truths. These are not in your notes, but I want you to just get them down and think through them. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a unique person and not simply a power or an influence. Very important for you to see. The Holy Spirit is a unique person. Now, the reason it's important for me to say that because He is spoken of as He, not it. And if you're probably a student listening, if you listen carefully, even in the hallways of our own congregation, people will speak of the Holy Spirit in terms of the neuter, in terms of it, like he's some impersonal force or power or wind. You may even catch yourself doing it from time to time. You say something about it and not he. But the Holy Spirit is a person. And so here's what I would say to you. If you catch yourself saying it in reference to the Holy Spirit, bite your tongue as quickly as you can. Because the Holy Spirit is a person. We know that from the truth of Scripture. He can be grieved. He can be resisted. Right? He's a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll get a broader picture as we look at these others, but as we think of this idea as a person, he may be grieved, he may be quenched in his activity, uh, in his exercise of the will. And for you and for me, we need to recognize that he is the third person of the Trinity. Number two, the Holy Spirit is fully God. And this is what I mean by that. He is one with the Father and one with the Son. Now, the uniqueness of the doctrine of God, proper doctrine, theology, who is God, His eternal essence, His nature. Three persons, one God. 
And it's very important for us to see this, this triune God that is beyond our understanding in all of our mathematical equations, one plus one plus one equals three. In God's economy, it's more like one times one times one equals one. He is one God, and yet we see throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end pictures of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. When God creates, we see God using the plural of us. Let us make man in our image. When we see him commissioning Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? We see at Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see the Son being baptized and then we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So there is a picture that there are many who have distorted his character and said, well, he's just playing different roles. I, I am a son, a husband, a brother, a father, but I am not in the same way as those roles how God is in his nature. He is three distinct persons. And it's critical for you to see this. Let, let me share a little more. When you read the upper room discourse, we, we see in John 14 that God the Father and Jesus were sending this, the Spirit, and the Spirit came and acted, as it were, for both of them. Listen to these words. Any endeavor to think of the Spirit in terms that are entirely mystical and divorced from Scripture will take us down all kinds of side streets and eventually to dead ends. That means we need to recognize the personhood of the Spirit of God. And when we miss that, we are worshiping in less than proper and full adoration. We've missed some things. Number three, I want you to see this. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was the agent of creation. I, I love this picture. How did God create? And God, all right, I'll just help you. In God blank, let there be light. God said, said, what do you use when you say something? Words. How are those words broadcast? I hear vocal cords and lungs and teeth and tongue and all kinds of different things. Breath is forced through all of the mechanics of vocal cords and teeth and tongue and enunciation. The, the, the account in Genesis says, Ruach, which is spirit, Elohim, Almighty. The spirit of the Almighty. It's the voice of God, the breath of God. You see, the spirit was a part of creation. If you think about it, the earth was formless and void, and the spirit of God hovered above the waters. God, the Holy Spirit, was a part of creation in a very powerful way. God the Father speaking, and the spirit of God enacting those miracle uh, miraculous acts of creation. Think about that with me. When, when you come to Isaiah 40 and you see the question, who created these? We have the answer right there in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit is irresistible power by which God accomplishes His purpose. Now, I want you to see this. When we use the word Spirit, sometimes we think it's something that's just immaterial. That's why I think it's tragic that the, the uh, translation of ghost is used because in our mindset, a ghost is just something immaterial. But the power of God is the Holy Spirit. And so when we see the, the Spirit of God, we see that He is a force, but He's a personal force. He's not just something immaterial. And it's important for us to see that. Now, 
Let me give you the next one. The Spirit of God is not only the agent of creation, He is the agent of new creation, of new birth, of new creation in Christ. You see, you can't be saved without the Spirit of God drawing you into that place of salvation. We learn that from Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Think about this story with me. Jesus is there. Nicodemus comes to Him at night asking questions, and He said, unless a man is born of water... And of the Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of God. Folks, I want you to stay with me because this is good teaching. This is important teaching. You are saved by the conviction and the drawing of the Spirit of God. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Spirit draws him. You cannot come to the Father except through Jesus. And you will not come to Jesus unless there's drawing of the Spirit of God. Number five, I want you to see this. The Spirit is the author of Scriptures. One of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture is in 2 Timothy. It says this about the Bible. All Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired, very simple Greek word, theopneustos. It's God breathed. Now, I'm not trying to give you a Greek lesson, but think about theo, theology, and otherwise it means God. And neustos, P-N-E-U. A lot of us have been considering that and concerned about that lately. Think about the word pneumonia, right? We're concerned about respiratory issues these days. It's God breathed. So think about this with me. If you really want to worship, I I, I find myself and did this week in my study just wanting to fall on my knees and raise my hands heavenward as I think the fact that God spoke and life emerged. And God breathed life into man. So the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim. And then we come forward and we say all Scripture is breathed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God enabled men to write down the words that we have. The Bible was not written by man. It was not conceived in the heart of the mind of man. It was conceived by the Spirit of God. And He gave us everything that God wanted. That's why the power of the Word is this, that the Word of God is living and active. Why? Because the Spirit of God enables it. He gives it the power. So for you and for me today, all of these are just background thoughts. We haven't even gotten to our message, but I just want to worship today and say, Oh God, how powerful and how lovely and how wonderful you are. The Spirit of God given to us as Jesus left and went back to the throne of heaven to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. He sent to us a helper that would come into our lives and he would restrain sin, that he would hold back the tide of evil through the people of God. You think one day we'll be raptured out of this place and when we're gone, can you imagine with no restraint the evil that will swell upon the earth? It ought to cause us to shudder. When people ask me, why didn't God stop that shooting or why didn't God stop that activity? I want to say, how many times has God stopped evil in so many other places? That's a side note we could get into, but I've said this to you before. You know, some of you say, I wish God would just remove all evil right now. Well, look out. If God removed all of the evil over all the face of the earth, how about your loved ones who are without Christ? 
How about you and me and our sinful condition? If God just removed his hand from this world, he could have wiped us all out for we deserve death. Now, look at your notes with me for just a moment. I want you to see this. After becoming a Christian, many believers feel that it's somehow up to them and their willpower to live holy and pleasing lives before God. Yet, as good as our intentions may be, we're incapable of living a life pleasing to God. So, I want to give you four more things. They're there in your notes, and I won't take long to walk through these, but put them up on the screen. Four foundational principles or concepts pertaining to life in the Spirit. Church family, this is worth the price of admission. If you want to live a successful Christian life full of the Holy Spirit, this is what you need to do. You need to first and foremost submit yourself today to the Lordship of Christ. You need to say, God, I surrender all. I want to give to you everything. I want your life to be my life. And the Spirit begins to breathe life in and through us. We submit ourselves and then confess sin. Just continue to confess sin. Agree with God that what you have done is wrong. Agree with God with what you have done, uh, that what you have done has caused separation. And allow Him to bring forgiveness. And then rely on the Spirit's empowerment. From there, begin to follow after Him day by day. And you do that by abiding in Christ. Again, we'll, we'll talk greatly about those things on Wednesdays. Let's, let's move to our text in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now, what? How much condemnation? Some condemnation? Little condemnation? No, none. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. I, I could close my Bible. We could all shout hallelujah and walk out of this place from that one sentence alone. That is a summation of the gospel. That is the summation of the best news ever presented to man. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Freely forgiven. Not guilty. Clean conscience. Free from the shackles of sin. Free from the burdens of shame. Free from the accuser who would say you are worthless. No, there is therefore now how much? No condemnation in Christ Jesus. We ought to just be shouting at that point to say, thank you God, there's volumes of preaching and teaching material in that one sentence. And it's confirmed throughout this chapter of Romans 8, in Christ, no condemnation. Let me very quickly take you through a few points that I want us to see. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Number one, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. After you've written that word, turn your attention back to verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, God regenerates you. He makes you brand new. I've seen so many people that have had a sense of conviction 
and they walked down the aisle and they took a pastor by the hand and they prayed a simple prayer and there was no change in their life. There was no fruit in their life. There was no evidence of new life in their life. They continued to come to church, maybe even with greater regularity. They walked through the waters of baptism and yet they had never been regenerated by the Spirit of God. I, I ask people this all the time, are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of your salvation, but Paul said those words. He said, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. I believe fundamentally one of the reasons that we do not experience revival in America is because we have an anemic church that has been inoculated with a false sense of salvation. There have been many people who have walked down the aisle and gone through religious experiences and never been regenerated. You see, you don't need to just be reformed. You don't need to just be restored. You need to be made brand new, given new life. And that's what the Spirit of God does. What does the text say? It says that we are set free from the law of sin and death. We are set free from the law of sin and death. It also says there's, the, the, there's good news in that. We were bound by the law of sin and death. But now here's the really good news. We are set free to obedience. We are set free and now we are capable of obeying God. You see, some people are mimicking life in the Spirit by going through religious motions. And Jesus pointed at very religious people in his day that were far from God and called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you clean up the outside, but the inside is full of death. You see, I was that way as a teenager. I was a spiritual schizophrenic. I'd come to church, I'd sit down front, I could sing all the songs, I could quote all the scriptures. I was lost, separated from God. And yet, when God came into my life, when I trusted Him by faith and got off of that religious treadmill and began a relationship with Him, all of a sudden my life was different. Now I have the capacity to do right. I have the capacity to say no to sin. And God gave me a growing desire for His Word, a growing desire to pray, a growing desire to be with the people of God and to study His Word and to be with Him in relationship. That's the power of the Spirit. The the power of the Spirit of God is in regenerating a dead heart and bringing us to life. We do not walk according to the flesh, the Scripture said there, but according to the Spirit. Now, I want to take just a moment and share this with you. A Bible teacher uh, and, and pastor's wife, a friend of mine, her name is Iva May. She does chronological Bible teaching. Shared this thought with me some time ago, and it really encouraged me through her teaching. The Bible describes the concept of God developing boundaries. Think about it. In the very beginning, God made boundaries, day and night, light and darkness, land and sea, the upper waters and the lower waters, um, uh, animal life and plant life. And here's what May said about it. It shouldn't surprise us when God accumulates a people for himself and makes a promise to send a deliverer that he would set boundaries for those people. Why? When God gives you and me a boundary, students, I want you to hear this in particular. When God gives you boundaries to establish a faith-based relationship with himself, what it means is that God is good, his word is true, and he can be trusted. Think about that. The simplicity of the Christian life, we make this so complicated. I either believe that God has said truth and what he said will revolution, 
revolutionarily change my life. It will, it will transform me that if I will trust in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that my life will forever be changed. But he set boundaries. He established them in the Old Testament. You can't just come to me any old way. There was one door into the Holy of Holies. There was one place, and in fact, the priest that would enter into the place of meeting had to go through very specific regimented washings, cleansings, offerings. God today hasn't changed in that. Not that we have to offer sacrifices because the temple veil was torn when Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice, but you cannot approach God on your own. You approach Him His way, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Spirit of God draws us into that relationship. Here's what I'm saying. When God establishes boundaries for us, it is for our good that we would live in holiness. And the only way that we can live in the parameters of His boundary are by the work of the Spirit. He regenerates us to that power. I'm amazed by that. This is a whole set of teaching or sermons that we could share if you think about it. When God set boundaries for everything, for the Old Testament saints, He told them what to eat and not to eat because He knew that certain things would make them sick. He talked to them about quarantine long before germs were discovered because they would live longer. They would be healthier. God gave sexual ethic and boundary for them and said, you can't act however you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want. This is my plan. And when you follow my plans, my boundaries, you, you can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when you follow my boundaries, you will find life. It's interesting as we think about this notion that regeneration is what God does. And in God setting those boundaries, it's because of a matter of self-control. And that's going to come a little farther in the message. Let me give you a couple more thoughts. Number two, justification is the work of the Holy Spirit. Justification. You see, the believer is acquitted and accepted by God when the guilt and penalty of his or her sin is put away forever. Your, your sin in the eyes of God is gone. Your record is expunged. It's clear. God planned it. Christ executed it. And the Holy Spirit applies it to your life. Warren Wearsby shares one of the greatest illustrations I've ever heard about justification. Here's a man from England who buys a Rolls Royce. And he's going on holiday, as Wearsby tells it. He's going on a vacation. And he has his Rolls Royce put on a boat and shipped to the mainland, to the continent. And he's going to drive across Europe. And as he's driving around Europe, something happens to his Rolls Royce. Something happens to the motor of his car. He calls the Rolls-Royce people back in England and he says to them, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls-Royce people flew a mechanic to where he was, repaired the car, flew back to England, and left the man to continue his holiday. As you can imagine, the man's wondering, how much is this going to cost me? He got back to England. He wrote the Rolls-Royce folks a letter because he'd heard nothing from them. He received a letter from the office, very official. It read, Dear Sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls-Royce. That's justification. No record anywhere anything had ever gone wrong. 
I think if we're not careful, there's a great analogy. People have said justification, in God's eyes, it's just as if I'd never sinned. <laughs> Maybe a good way to look at it in part, but you did sin. And that's what makes the richness of the atonement so rich. It's not that God just forgave a little bit. No, Jesus Christ shed his life blood to bring you that kind of standing before God the Father. And the Spirit of God is the one who justifies us. The record is cleared. Justification is the declared purpose of God to regard and treat sinners who believe in Jesus Christ as if they'd never sinned on the grounds and the merits of Jesus Christ. It's not a mere pardon. Listen to these words. Pardon is a free forgiveness of past offenses. It has reference to those sins as forgiven and blotted out, but justification has respect to the law and God's future dealings with the sinner. It is an act by which God determines to treat you hereafter as righteous. That's mind-boggling. The work of the Spirit is that He regenerates us and gives us new life. He makes us, in the eyes of God, righteous. Thirdly, I want you to see that sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification. And this really is the crux of the matter. It's how we live out this process. It's a process of consistently and more fervently following and obeying Jesus. Now, I would say this very plainly. It's in your notes. Fill this in. By our text, there are two kinds of people. If we read all the way down to verse 11, you would see more of a contrast. There are those who live according to the flesh, and there are those who live according to the Spirit. My question is, which are you? Are you living your life according to the Spirit of God? Are you living your life, your habits and your hobbies, your avocations, all of the things of your life, the way that you spend your time, your money, your relationships, are you doing them submitted to God's will, God's way, God's boundary? This process of sanctification. Now, I know some of you would say this, well, pastor, if he enables me to do good, and I can't do any good on my own, and the Spirit is sovereign, and without that enablement I'm done, I might as well just sit here and do nothing. I might as well just rest and let him do all the work. Well, I'm glad you thought that because you're not the first one. And in thinking that, I, I believe Paul really wrestled through that with people that thought that. He said these words, beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Basically, get up and get moving. God is at work in you and will, uh, both with the will and the work for his good pleasure. Listen to this. Pastor and author John Piper said there are two things wrong with this idea that you would just do nothing. Number one, it's self-contradictory. Number two, it's not biblical. How does it contradict itself? Well, if you just decide you're going to sit there and do nothing, let's suppose your house is on fire, and you decide, I'm just going to sit in this chair and do nothing. Well, it's self-contradictory because you've chosen to do something. Somebody else may have chosen to get up and save himself and to save others. Why should you think that one choice is any more inconsistent with God's sovereignty than another? 
And secondly, that statement is unbiblical. And that thought, I'm just going to sit back and let the Spirit of God live through me. Well, here's the deal. Paul said, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You need to go back to those four principles that I told you. Submit to the Lordship of Christ. You need to focus on confessing sin. You need to focus on relying on the enablement of the Spirit of God and abide in Christ every single day. Here's what I would leave you with today. In my estimation, it is great incentive, not discouragement, that all of our effort to do right is the work of Almighty God within us. It's incentive because I ought to love Him that much more. God, you are so good to me that even in my inability to do anything good, you gave me your spirit. You regenerated me. You made me right and justified before you. And now you're in this process of sanctifying me, growing me in Christ. And I want to do nothing but abide in you. I want to make every effort to do right. And I believe that's a sign of God's grace in your life. Pastor, why are you so consumed with this idea of the Spirit-filled life? Because I see our church and so many other churches saturated with carnality. Saturated with people who live according to the flesh. And if our Christianity really does mean something to us, then we better come at the heart of it. And the heart of it is to worship the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And to recognize the work that each of the members of the triune Godhead do. I would encourage you this week, submit yourself fresh and new. Allow God to stir in you. And maybe, just maybe, if you have felt a tug of the Spirit of God, and you say, you know what, I've lived a long time religiously, but I've never lived in relationship with God. Today could be your appointed homecoming. Today could be the day that you trust Him and the Spirit of God has drawn you to Himself and you can be gloriously and radically saved. That's my prayer. My prayer is that we would become a people so indwelled by and filled with and overflowing with the Spirit of God, enabled to do goodness, justified before God, recognized as righteous, that a watching world around us would be magnetically drawn to our great Savior.